this morning. Before we turn our attention to God's Word, let us just open up in a word of prayer. Lord, we just ask that as we turn to your Holy Word, uh, Lord, that we will, through the Holy Spirit of God, receive it as uh, absolute truth, the truth that we need, uh, truth that we live by, and truth that we would be willing to die for. Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit of God would go before us, Lord, as you reveal uh, the preciousness of your word to us and in us, uh, Lord, through the same Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would give us desire and power to fulfill your calling in our life. For that is the goodness of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we're uh, getting prepared for our message this morning, I do want to uh, just echo what Pastor Tommy said about just praying for our students as they are headed off to Look Up Lodge along with adults. And just, a, just an amazing time, an opportunity uh, for young people specifically, as well as the adult leaders, to just uh, really reconnect with the Lord. And for some, uh, just connect with the Lord for the very first time and how important that is. And I'm so thankful for our church family that uh, supports uh, ministries like uh, Look Up Lodge and different things for our kids and our students. Uh, it was funny, uh, my wife is actually... Uh, going uh, with the students this week. So my, our two oldest daughters and my wife are going to be gone, and I'll be uh, here with our two youngest children, and we have a, a, a young puppy. And so, uh, you know, as we were riding to church today, and most often, uh, maybe once a year, we ride together on Sunday morning just because our schedules are a little bit different on Sunday morning. Well, today we had the opportunity to do so, and I'm driving, and they're all talking about all this stuff, and and I'm just like laughing, like, man, you guys got a lot going on. And, and my oldest daughter says, Dad, you know, Mom has a to-do list for you on the refrigerator. <laughs> and uh, they started talking about, my wife said, yeah, and I mean, just started rattling off all this stuff. And it's interesting, because when it comes to work, I'm pretty detail-oriented. When it comes to life, I'm just, I just, whatever happens, we're good, you know. And, and at that moment, I just said, time out. I'm not starting with details down. I'm starting with survival and work way, my way up. It's a lot easier that way. And so I told my wife, I assure you, I will do everything I can to keep them fed and all that good stuff. And Lord willing, the house will be clean on Friday when you get back. So I'm starting small. But uh, it's just interesting how God has designed us to function in different ways. And, and I'm so thankful uh, for specifically my wife. And I'm thankful. I'm praying that my two oldest daughters uh, just have an amazing time with the Lord. Um, I'm supposed to cry later on in the service, but we'll get it out. Uh, so we're opening up to uh, Galatians uh, chapter 2, specifically looking at verses 11 through 14. But as a way of a recap, uh, just real quickly, last week we had the opportunity to look at verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2. And just a really uh, an important and pivotal time in the life of the church. Uh, just as a reminder... Uh, it was uh, Paul and Barnabas who were sent on that first missionary journey. And that's the other thing. Like The book of Galatians is more than likely the Apostle Paul's first writings, uh, more than likely somewhere around uh, 48 A.D. So we're only talking 15 or so years after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is early literature uh, for a purpose because Paul and Barnabas were commissioned uh, by the Lord through the church in, there in Antioch, Assyria, to, to go on that first missionary journey, uh, specifically to the province of Galatia, which is one of the largest provinces in the Roman Empire, and there they, they shared the gospel. Souls were saved, uh, churches were planted, lives were transformed, and things were awesome. But in, as soon as they, pretty much as soon as they left, these false teachers started coming in and said, no, it's not just Jesus. It's not just the grace of the gospel, it's Jesus plus works. And so in, in Galatians 2, we, we're introduced with uh, Titus. Titus is a, is a Greek, he's a, he's a Gentile, he come to faith in Christ. And, and so Paul and Barnabas take them to the church in Jerusalem before the leaders there, which would be uh, 
Peter, James, and John and said, hey, listen, the same gospel of grace that has changed our life is the same gospel of grace that changes uh, the Gentiles' lives. And Titus was their, was their evidence. This is how God works. And so in our verses of last week, we learned that the gospel of grace brings tremendous unity, uh, that there's unity in the message. It's the same message regardless, right? But we also know that there's context to it. So as we look at different people groups, uh, Gentile and Jew, to use the, the language in the early church, or today we look at just the difference of culture and different things that are happening, not only within our country, but globally, uh, that, that it's the same message, but the way that we deliver that message, the methods that we use, they can change, but the message always stays the same. So there's unity there. There's unity in the mission. So regardless if we're, we're staying local and going across the street or we're going across the ocean, that, that we're unified in that mission, that there's one gospel for all, Right? And we, we partner together in that. So it's not competition, but it's us partaking in uh, the fellowship that God has provided for us to, to go out and be a light into a dark world. And it's that very uh, unity that we are to guard. And that's why verses 1 through 10 are so important. Because when we get to verses 11 through 14, uh, there's conflict within the church. Uh, and so are, are they going to fulfill? Are they going to go back to verses 1 through 10 and, and focus on the unity that we have in the gospel of grace when, when sin comes into the church. And that's why 11 through 14 are so important. So let's read that together, and then we'll unpack it. Uh, the scripture says, but, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I, speaking of Paul, opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the attack that's against the unity of the church, the gospel of grace, the attack here is what? It's hypocrisy. Now, when we think about hypocrisy, there's many things that go through our mind, but let's understand uh, the cultural context first and work our way up. In the Roman Empire, the theater was of huge importance, right? This is just like us. We like to be entertained, right? So the Romans, they like to be entertained as well. And one of the ways that they would do that is through theater. Now, it, shockingly, they didn't have the same technology that we have today, right? They don't have massive sound systems and all this stuff, one projector instead of two, right? They don't have all those different things. But, but what they did have was they would get on this stage and they would wear a mask to co communicate specifically emotion. And so this mask had to be created in such a way, designed in such a way with color and, and design and facial expression so that uh, large theaters could look down on that stage and understand what was being communicated by that particular actor. They would wear a mask. They would pretend to be something that they weren't. And so when we think about hypocrisy or hypocrite, that's where we get our English word hypocrite from. So, so we're pretending to be something that we're not. And that's exactly what happens in verses 11 through 14. We have this conflict in the church because there was a mask that was being worn. Just as a question, how many of us at some point in our life have lived the role of a hypocrite. All right. If your hand's not raised, you're just confused. We'll get there, and you'll realize that, that I've done that myself, right? So when we think about hypocrisy, the first thing that we understand from Scripture is hypocrisy is a sin. It is a sin. And why is that important? It's important for us to call it what it is, right? 
And the reality is, all of us, again, we're talking to the church. We're talking to born-again believers, right? We struggle and at times commit the sin of what? Hypocrisy. And that's exactly what's happening in the passage this morning. In Galatians 2.11, the scripture says, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, he says, I posed him to his face because he what? He stood condemned. So the setting has changed. Verses 1 through 10, they're in Jerusalem, right? This is, this is where the church was born, right? But now they're back in Antioch. This is Paul and Barnabas' home turf, right? And Peter goes from Jerusalem. He goes to Antioch. Uh, Antioch is extremely important in the life of the church. Uh, in fact, uh, when you think about geographical size, it's the third largest city uh, in the Roman Empire. It's known as the Queen of the East, and so there's a lot that's happening in Antioch. It's a very diverse place. Uh, we know from history that in 300 BC, so 300 years uh, before the birth of Christ, it was the Jews, to, the Jewish people who went in there and settled in there first. Uh, but, but Antioch, is only second to Jerusalem in the, in the place of importance in the early church. Antioch had huge importance in the early church. So by the time we get to the Apostle Paul's writing, where we're at today, that, that, that small Jewish community that started 300 years before the church, that particular city in Antioch now had roughly a half a million people. Unfortunately, if you want to call it that, only 10% of the population were Jewish. That meant 90% were what? They were non-Jews. So you can just imagine that when your hometown changes and it's radically different, right? And so that's kind of what's happening here. So understand a little bit more of the context. But again, in Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10, there was agreement amongst the leadership of the church that the gospel that we heard, they heard, revealed specifically from Jesus Christ was one and the same, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. So there's the unity there, but now that unity is going to come under attack. And so when the scripture says that uh, Peter stood condemned, the word condemned doesn't mean that he lost his salvation, and that's important. Listen, your assurance of your salvation is not based on your performance. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, once you have been born again by grace through faith, you have been sealed forever, for eternity, with the Holy Spirit of God. And so that is extremely important. So it's not talking about losing salvation. It means that Peter is to blame for why this particular sin of hypocrisy is entering into the church there. How do we know it's a sin? Well, Galatians 2.14 at the beginning says, But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That means that Peter was starting to turn away from the gospel of grace. We saw this in Galatians 1 verse 6 where the scripture says, when Paul says, he's speaking to the churches in Galatia, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, talking about the Lord, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So they're moving, Peter is moving away from the gospel of grace to a gospel of works, which is really no gospel at all. This is a reminder to us that this didn't mean that Peter didn't believe in the gospel of grace. He did. But he was failing to live it out. He was choosing not to live it out. He was wearing a what? He was wearing a mask. He was pretending to be someone that he wasn't. So he had right belief 
but wrong living, right? That's exactly what's happening here. And based on how it's written in the Greek, it reminds us that this wasn't a one-time event. This was beginning to be a habitual practice for Peter, that he had to struggle with hypocrisy and his life began to reflect that of hypocrisy and not the gospel of grace. So it's not a one-time deal. This was like a, a continuous practice that was beginning to happen. And, and before we uh, get prideful and arrogant and say, oh, I would never do that, man. Peter's a leader in the church. How in the world? Let us be reminded that we're all prone to wander. We're all prone to leave the God we love, right? I, I love what the half-brother of Jesus says in James uh, chapter 3. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. Is that not true? All of us, every single one of us, all stumble in many ways. And for Peter, in this particular situation, it was that of hypocrisy. So we know, first and foremost, that hypocrisy is a sin. The second thing that we learn in this particular passage is hypocrisy breaks fellowship. Hypocrisy breaks fellowship. Everything about the gospel of grace communicates fellowship, first and foremost, with God, right? And then out of that fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another, specifically brothers and sisters in Christ. But what happens when hypocrisy begins to enter into the church, what happens when you have right belief but wrong living within the body of Christ? Well, fellowship begins to be broken. Notice how this happens in verse 12, Galatians chapter 2. The scripture says, For before certain men came from James, he, speaking of Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So we don't know for sure who these individuals are. Uh, we know that they came from uh, James. We don't even know if the, James actually sent them. Now, the scripture uh, kind of alludes to that here. It's kind of uh, vague, but we, we really don't know if James really sent them. In fact, I would argue that James actually didn't send them. I think they used the name of James to develop some clout, but if you look at Acts 15, verse 24, James says, I didn't send them. They didn't come from me. Right? And so that's important. Uh, but we don't know for sure. But what we do know is this religious group came and they had a problem with the very fact that a Jew was sharing a meal with a Gentile. You know, this isn't the first time this happened. When Jesus uh, had his earthly ministry, you know what he did? He had meals with who? He had meals with sinners. He had meals with Gentiles. And, and guess what? The religious crowd had a problem with that. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 15, verse 2, the scripture says, And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, complained, saying, This man, speaking of Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. And praise be to God, he does that, right? He brings me to his table, right? I'm so thankful for that. So the picture here in Galatians 2 is that Peter, as a Christian who is a Jew, is sharing a meal with a Christian who has the culture of a Gentile. This, is, this meal, this gathering that they had, wasn't a one-time deal. This is, this is a practice, a daily practice that they had. They, they joined together at the table for a daily meal. Now, this meal is a big deal. It's not just sharing food itself, which is an awesome thing, but in the Jewish culture specifically, this sharing of a meal symbolized something far greater than just eating food. It symbolized that we were one. And the same God that blesses me wants to bless you, and he will allow me, he will open the door for blessings that I have in order to bless you back, right? We saw that. Remember the famine that happened in the early church? It was the Gentiles who brought relief to the Jewish congregation, right? And so that's important, and so that's what we see here. 
Now, this idea of table fellowship may not really be that big of a deal to us today. I mean, in fact, uh, if we're honest, uh, some of us spend more of our time uh, eating a meal in the minivan than we do at the table, right? And that's a challenge for us, right? We're a quick society. Now, uh, when my wife and I went to uh, China about five and a half years ago to uh, get our little girl, which we're so thankful for, uh, we understood that this idea of lunchtime meant more than just 15 minutes. It was like a two to three hour deal, and you had a, a big old table, everybody sat around it, and there was a big old, I guess a lazy Susan or whatever, all the food's there, and you're just spinning around and picking what you want, everybody's picking, you know, so it's a glorified uh, golden corral, right, in a good way, right? Um, and so basically, this meal time was huge, huge importance. So we have in this particular passage two, two important things. We have uh, this, this meal, and then did you hear the circumcised, circumcision party, right? So these, these two things, circumcision and uh, this meal, were huge things. Now, I'm, I'm 100% confident that when we walked into this sanctuary this morning, we were not thinking who's circumcised and, not, and who's not circumcised. That, that's a little creepy, right? We didn't think that. And I'm probably 95% sure we didn't walk in here ask, thinking to ourselves, I wonder what they eat. Are they organic, non-organic? Are they keto-friendly or carb loaders? You know, what are they? We're we, we don't do that often, right? But in this particular culture, specifically the Jewish culture, this was huge. Why? Because in the Old Testament, those are two main ways that God's people were identified. They had not only ceremonial laws, circumcision, but they had dietary laws, the eating of food and what you specifically didn't eat. But by the grace of God, when Jesus came onto the scene and, and he did the work of grace on the cross and he tore those walls down. It was no longer the old covenant. It's now a new covenant of grace. And Peter knew this. How did Peter know this? Let's understand the buildup of what's happening in Peter's life. In Acts 10, there's a, a, an incredible uh, encounter of God's grace, both to the Jew and to the Gentile in Acts 10. In Acts 10, you, you have Cornelius. Cornelius was uh, a Gentile, right? He did not grow up with Jewish custom. And God begins to reveal himself to him. And then about that same time, God is revealing himself to Peter. Peter is a follower of Christ from Jewish uh, descent, but he's a follower of Christ. And, and Ju- uh, Peter is having a time with the Lord. He's praying, and, and sometimes, like us, he, he got hungry, right? You ever been praying and you got hungry? Well, he, he gets hungry in the midst of his prayer time, and, and all of a sudden, this vision comes from the, from the sky, and it's like a blanket just comes down, and, and there's all these foods on there that he's not supposed to eat, Right? And God says something awesome. He literally says, go kill and eat. That's pretty strong language. But Peter's confused. This has never been this way, God. Are you sure I'm hearing this right? And essentially, God says, it's okay. Get you some bacon, right? It's okay. Now, I would love to relive the first time I tasted bacon, but I think every time I eat bacon, I relive the first time because I never have been disappointed with bacon. And so you have these walls beginning to uh, be torn down. And so God is, and again, this is important, God is revealing himself both to the Jew and to the Gentile at the very same time because there's an amazing testimony that happens here. So much so that when we get to Acts chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, uh, this is what Peter says. And he said to them, so Peter is talking to Cornelius, but not just Cornelius. By this time, Cornelius has his family gathered around, right? Uh, And and he says, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That's what we were just talking about, right? You, You don't enter into table fellowship with someone who is a Jew if you're 
you're a Gentile or vice versa. If you're a Jew, you don't associate with a Gentile. But I love the contrast here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Peter's not sure why Cornelius is coming to find him. He didn't know that God had revealed himself to Cornelius as well. And so there's an interchange that begins to happen. So Cornelius shares with Peter everything that God shared with him. So much so that this is what happens next in Acts 10, verse 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows what? God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is what? Acceptable to him. So in other words, every follower of Christ, regardless of your cultural upbringing, is one at the table, right? You're one at the table. There's a chair for all of us in Christ. And Peter begins to share the amazing message of the gospel of grace and what happens in Acts 10, 44 and 45. The scripture says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on who? The Gentiles. What an amazing, this is a massive moment in the early church. For the first time, you see the gospel go public specifically to the Gentile nation. We see Gentiles being saved by grace through faith. They have the same Holy Spirit they're part of the body of Christ. This is a big deal. But it wasn't without criticism, right? What do we see in Acts 11? Acts 11, verses 1 through 3, the scripture says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And at this point you would think, praise be to God, let's celebrate. God is building his kingdom right here, right before our eyes, both Jew and Gentile. But verse 2 says, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party did what? They criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? The very thing that they, were, they had against Jesus, they now have against Peter. But I love what Peter does next. Peter addresses the issue with the gospel of grace. Peter stood up and he shared before all, all that happened. What God did in his life, in the life of Cornelius and his family. And listen to the response in Acts eleven eighteen. 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. The gift of silence. When God has your attention. They fell silent, and the scripture says, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And it's at this point forward that we see the gospel going out. And one of those first places is there in Antioch. And it's there in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas team up and the church in Antioch, Syria, they send Paul and Barnabas out on that first missionary journey. And it's on that first missionary journey that the, the churches in Galatia, again, were planted and lives were changed and souls were saved. And so this is a beautiful thing to the point where when Paul and Barnabas got back from that first missionary journey, they, they go to the church in Antioch and they begin to share all that God had done. And what do we see in Acts 14, 27? And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So this table fellowship that we're talking about is a big deal. 
It's a gospel issue when we don't have table fellowship. And in Christ, we are welcomed around the table. But when these individuals from Jerusalem go up and Peter sees them, the scripture says that he drew back and he separated himself. That phrase, drew back, means to shun. The word separated means to create a wall. And the verb tense that's here is very, very, very important. It's not an abrupt action. It's a subtleness. It's kind of like you have a relationship with somebody, you're friends with somebody, you text back and forth every day, and then all of a sudden, you don't get a text for a day. You don't get a text for two days. You don't get a text for a week. And so it's kind of like that, that there's this gradual, it's, it's a military term, actually. It's a strategy that military uses in order to pull away. And that's what was happening here. Peter was drawing back. So this didn't happen overnight, but over time. Now the question is, why? Why did Peter do it? One word. Did you see the word? Fear. He was afraid. Peter believed in the gospel of grace, but fear caused him to live differently. You know, fear is a powerful emotion, is it not? You know, fear is one of the things that stops us from running into oncoming traffic, right? Fear also is a great emotion that leaves us standing in awe of God, who he is, what he's doing, and what he will do, right? But fear, fear in the wrong way, paralyzes us from the very thing that God has called and equipped us for. So fear, in this particular case, was robbing Peter of the freedom of sitting down and having continual fellowship with those who come from a different culture. So Peter was gripped with fear. Now, why was that? We don't know for sure. We can speculate. One of them could be persecution. Uh, right before this encounter in Acts chapter 12, it tells us that, uh, that Peter was thrown in jail. He was being persecuted by the religious people. It also tells us that James, the brother of John, was martyred. So it's possible that when this group came in, he, he feared for his life. We don't know. Uh, it's also possible that Peter feared of losing the approval of man, right? He wanted everybody to like him. And so he had to wear a mask in order to try to keep the group together, right? Peer pressure, we call it. We don't know for sure, but we know fear gripped him at that moment more than the gospel of grace gripped him. So think about this. Consider how fear drives us to break fellowship with the body of Christ. Think about the cultural context, right? Jewish settlement, 300 B.C., by 48 A.D., 500,000 people, but you only have 10% of the community. So fear of losing control, right? Fear of losing your traditions. Fear of losing your identity, it's a reminder to us that our identity needs to be constantly found in Christ and nothing else. Not in our country, not in, not in our country, but his kingdom. Not in our creature comforts, but his presence. Not in our performance, but his perfection. Not in our preferences, but in his power. Why? Because do we see what hypocrisy can do? Hypocrisy destroys and harms and hinders the freedom that we have in gospel community, and that's what's happening here. They're no longer one united group, but they're becoming two distinct groups of people, and, and that's what the gospel tore down. The third thing that we see here is hypocrisy negatively influences others. You know, it doesn't just influence you, but it has the potential of influencing those around you, and that's what we see in verse uh, 13. The scripture says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, talking about Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
You know, it's unfortunate that one person goes astray, normally what? Others will follow, right? Specifically leaders. And that's Peter was a leader. But be reminded, no matter what setting you're in, at some, some level, you're a leader as well. And so you, what you do or do not do will have the potential of influencing other, both positively or negatively. So not only is one person wearing a mask now, but the group of people are now wearing a mask. They're choosing, again, they they know the gospel, they believe the gospel, but they're choosing to live differently. And just like a cancer, hypocrisy, the sin of hypocrisy, spreads throughout the community. Galatians 5.9, uh, Paul is going to say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, it doesn't stay by itself, right? It spreads out. In fact, it's interesting that when Jesus addresses the leaven of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12, he illustrates the leaven of the Pharisee with what? Hypocrisy. He says that hypocrisy is spreading. And you can almost hear the hurt and disappointment in Paul's words. Even Barnabas, even Barnabas has led astray. One of the godliest people I know, the one who sold his land to support the church, the one who first introduced me to the body of Christ, the one who celebrated the work of God's grace both to the Jew and to the Gentile, the one who was my fellow missionary with me, alongside me, my brother in Christ, has also been led astray. You know, when you look back at your time within the body of Christ, if it be Charleston Baptist Church or somewhere else, where have you led others astray or been led astray by the sin of hypocrisy? Do you see why this is so dangerous? Do you see why this has the potential of hindering the work of Christ in and through the church and how hypocrisy, the sin of hypocrisy, spreads like wildfire. And not, there's probably not a single person in this congregation today or joining with us online that has not been harmed by the sin of hypocrisy. That leads us to the fourth thing. Hypocrisy causes confusion about grace. Hypocrisy causes confusion about grace. Hypocrisy obscures the true grace found in the gospel. When you and I choose to live within the means of the sin of hypocrisy, we are destroying or distorting would be a better word, distorting the grace that is found in the gospel. We see this in verse 14. Paul says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, I love this verse for many reasons. One of them is this. God is not telling Jewish people to be Gentiles, and he's not telling Gentiles to be Jewish people. He's saying it's okay to have your distinctives, right? It's okay to have the culture that you were brought up in. It's okay to have your heritage. It's okay to have your racial differences. All those different things, those things that make you, you. It's as long as it's not a sin against the Lord, right? That's okay, but, but what's wrong is when you take your heritage, your distinction, what makes you, you, and you make it your Lord. That's where the issue comes in. We already saw this challenge in previous verses in Galatians 2-3 when Titus goes up. Remember, the Greek, the non-Jew. But even Titus, who was with me, was not what? He was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, right? He's not forced. But now in Galatians 2-14, Peter says, that Paul says to Peter, you're forcing these people to live like you, right? That's where the sin is coming in, and you're distorting the beauty of God's grace, why is this so important? Remember the unity, Galatians 2, 5. 
To them, so this is before this event in 11 through 14. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that what? The truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. What was at stake? The gospel of God's grace and how people understood it. And that's why, prior to verses 11 through 14 and verse uh, 1 through 10 in Galatians 2, Titus, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, and John, they get together and they're unified on the gospel message. That's why it's important. But now there's hypocrisy and now the gospel of grace is at stake. In all honesty, think about this. Do you, do you tend to fight more for your preferences so that they will be embraced by the people around you or do you find that you fight more to keep the unity and freedom we already have in the gospel? Where do you spend your energy? What keeps you up at night, right? What, what causes you heartache within the body of Christ? Is it truly a gospel issue or is it personal preference and conviction? This is why when Paul says to the Jews, I became a Jew, to a Gentile, I became a Gentile. It meant that all those things were secondary to him. And so if I was ministering to the Jews, I would take on the custom of the Jews, as long as it didn't contend with the gospel. And if I was doing ministry with the Gentiles, guess what? I took on the customs and the culture of the Gentiles, as long as it didn't contend with the gospel. What matters the most is that we are saved and sanctified by the amazing grace of God. That's what matters the most. The walls of division have already been gone in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, but now in Christ Jesus who once were, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and that's what it is by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's amazing to me that God knew what needed to be done in order to bring peace between the Jew and the Gentile in Christ at the cross. His son had to die. And so the walls of hostility have been broken down. So let's just think about church history in America for just a moment. Just see how hypocrisy causes great damage within the church and the gospel of grace. Let's think about, just for a moment, racism and segregation in the church in America. Just think about how astonishing it is that the sin, of, have, the sin of hypocrisy has caused great damage within the life of the church in America. But think about how foolish it is. Think about the millions upon millions of dollars and mission, countless missionaries that have been sent to countries in Africa to do what? To spread the gospel of grace. And yet in our own country, in our own churches on Sunday morning, We cannot find the means of grace to worship the same God together. It makes no sense. Now, before we get on our high horse and look back in the past 50 years and point our fingers at them, let us again realize that we all stumble in many ways, right? So the heart of the church, the heart of this pastor, your pastor, one of your pastors, is that we don't have to wait 30 years from now to look back and say, man, we really got it wrong. But we would, with great gospel sensitivity, be open to what God is doing and not allow these secondary things, these distinctives, yes, 
to not be our Lord. And that's what's happening in the body of Christ in many ways. And so my prayer is that we will not confuse the gospel of grace, not only to ourselves, but to our community that's around us. That leads us to the fifth and final thing. Hypocrisy needs to be confronted. It needs to be confronted. We see this in two places. The first time we see it is in uh, the second part of verse 11. I, Paul, opposed him, Peter, to his face, right? So uh, Paul goes directly to Peter. And then we see this again in the first part of verse 14, where it says, but when I, speaking of Paul, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas or Peter before them all. So now Peter confronts them, uh, or Paul confronts him where? In, in front of everybody. Now it's interesting, and this is where my mind uh, works. I'm trying to get the illustration of, okay, what's going on here? I, you just love to be there, right? Uh, it's funny, we'll say, I wish I was a fly on the wall so I could hear what was going on. The issue is flies don't have ears, right? So that doesn't really make sense, right? They can't hear. But think about what's happening here. Is, in my mental picture is when you think about Peter, uh, Peter's name means rock. Uh, Paul's name means small, right, or little. And so in my mind, I'm just thinking of, all right, who, who are two individuals where, where one is small and one is big? Well, there's a lot of movies that The Rock and Kevin Hart do together, right? And I'll show a picture so you just get the look right here, right? The Rock is 6'5", 260, and if you figure out who he is. Kevin Hart is 5'2", 140, Right? And so in my mind, I've got this idea that Peter, this big man, and, and Paul, this little guy, are going head to head. But guess who wins? Paul wins. Not because he's smarter or stronger. It's because he uses, he leverages the gospel of grace to show and expose the error of his sin. And so in my mind, I have this picture of this, this opposition that's happening. And what we find with confrontation, specifically in the body of Christ, is that it is what? It is difficult. Right? Think about your life for just a moment within the body of Christ. How often or how many times have you confronted a particular sin and you went about it the wrong way? Or think about somebody who has confronted you with a legit sin and they went at it the wrong way. And so there's guilt, there's hurt, there's shame, there's all those different things, right? But it doesn't negate the what? The beauty of confrontation within the body of Christ for the sake of the gospel. Now, we may sit here and say, well, Paul got it all wrong. He should have went to Peter one-on-one. You know, the reality is we don't know. We know from verses 1 through 10, they did have a private meeting. So it, it's safe to say that maybe they had a private meeting on this one. Uh, it also tells us in uh, 1 Timothy 5 that if a leader has a public sin, then it's okay to do what? Public confrontation. So we don't, we don't know all the details, but we do know that the scripture does give us uh, the heart of confrontation. And one of the ways that we see this is in Galatians 6. It's a beautiful passage. Uh, Paul writes, he says, Brothers, so he's talking to the church. If anyone is caught in any transgression, so any sin, hypocrisy being one of them, you who are spiritual, so this phrase, you are spiritual, isn't talking about your pastors specifically. It's talking about someone who, in that moment of their life, is a, is a healthy disciple. They're being led by the Spirit of God. You who are spiritual should do what? You should restore him. That's the goal of the confrontation. Restoration. Now get two pictures in your mind when you think about restoration. On the one hand, it's, it's bringing back together a broken bone, right? So anytime you've broken a bone, they, they reset it, right? They want to restore that bone, not just to where it was, but to be better than it was, right? The other idea of restoration has to do with mending nets, 
And so when you think about nets being used for fishing, a lot of times they'll get holes in them. And so in order to, uh, to make them work effectively, you have to mend them back. And so the picture here is that, that this restoration is to, to set something that has been bro- reset something that's been broken and to also mend it in such a way that it can be repurposed again, right? That's the heart of restoration. That's the heart of the gospel. Now, now also look at the heart behind it. Paul says, in, in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So these two things converging together, humility and pride, right? Gentleness only comes from who? The Spirit of God, right? This is one of the characteristics of God in you. And in order to show gentleness, you have to rely on the Spirit and not on the pride of your flesh. And that's what I think he's talking about. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What's the temptation when you're confronting somebody with their sin? I'm better than you. How dare you get this wrong, right? And so both of these things, gentleness, humility, all those things working together for what? For the sake of restoring a brother or sister in Christ back in right fellowship with the Lord and with one another. Did this work in Peter's life? Oh, yes, it did. How do we know? We get towards the end of Peter's life uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen to what he says. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he groups all these sins together, right? He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter says you fight the flesh, the sin of the flesh, not with the works of the law, but by the grace of the gospel. That's the spiritual milk. Grow up in that. Feed on that. That phrase, grow up, brings us back to John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. So it's that humility that comes alongside it. But we also know that this moment was pivotal not only in Peter's life, but in the life of the church right after this encounter in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. In Acts 15, we have the Jerusalem Council. This is where the record is going to be set once and for all. How are you made right with God? Is it Jesus or is it Jesus plus works? And guess what? Peter is there, and he's the one that's taking the bold stand for the gospel. After this confrontation, this is what we see in Acts 15, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Man, praise be to God. What an amazing testimony of God's grace in Peter's life and how he used Paul to confront him with that particular sin of hypocrisy. So it appears that Peter took that correction and allowed the gospel to sink deep, to expose that hypocrisy, and to heal that sin of hypocrisy. It's a reminder to us, going back to the the difficulty with confrontation. Again, we've done it wrong, we've received it wrong, right? And even at times when you do it right, it's not received right. Listen, the reality is we're not perfect people, but we need gospel community together. So we need to seek forgiveness, seek restoration, seek reconciliation, 
with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to learn how to extend grace and receive grace from others. This means that we need to set our mind with tremendous humility on Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because hypocrisy is a sin. Hypocrisy breaks fellowship. Hypocrisy negatively influences others. Hypocrisy causes confusion about grace, and hypocrisy needs to be confronted. As the worship team comes up and leads us in our time of